Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 30 of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law and sometimes dag nabbit wild women on the right side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your host. I'm the author of Lady Killers, a book about female serial killers, and I'm working on a project, a book about con women, which, if it does not kill me, it will be my greatest work to date. Um, I'm also... I identify as a sort of professional big sister, so if you need a shoulder to cry on, a sort of semi-maternal advice or support, you can ask me about my rates. They're very reasonable, and um, I have three great references from my younger siblings, and if they don't give me a good reference, I will destroy them. (laughs) Just kidding. I love them so much. Um, What else? Before I get to today's story, no stories. I wanted to give you a little update on Patreon, the the primary means of uh, making criminal broads happen. So it's thanks to my amazing patrons that this podcast is able to come out. Thank you guys so much. Um, but I must confess, I have not been the best or most consistent patroness in the world. Um, so all that is changing now. I've revamped my Patreon, given it a few tweaks, a little facelift here, a little Botox there. And starting with this episode, I'm going to post a behind-the-scenes post after every episode featuring information, photos, whatever I couldn't fit into this episode. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that every time, I promise. Keep me to it. Um, and I've also added in a new reward for patrons at the $5 level or above if you are giving that much per month, you can ask questions about true crime in general, about specific cases, about my Wi-Fi password, and I will do my best to answer them in the episodes. So uh, come on over to patreon.com slash criminalbroads or look for the link in the show notes because it is going to be a party. All right, last episode we talked about something that many of you messaged me and said was horrible. I totally agree. We talked about a subject that was truly horrible. We talked about the story of Irma Greza, a female concentration camp guard who slaughtered God knows how many people during the Holocaust. It was a real—oh, she was 22. I, I just feel like we all need to absorb that. She was 22 when she died, 18 when she started. Wow. So the episode was a real bummer, right? It was a downer. Um, you're probably wondering why in the world I put you through that. I put you through it, my friends, so that we could more fully rejoice in today's subject matter. I want to give credit for today's episode, and in fact, sort of for the whole concept, to my amazing listener, Ellie, who suggested that I cover one of the cases. Um, The first story I'm going to tell you was her suggestion. And when she suggested that, it got me thinking, huh... Wouldn't it be interesting to approach World War II from both sides, to start with the really awful side and then go to the side of, um, oh, is it too dramatic to say the army of the righteous? <laughs> that probably is too dramatic. But, you know, go to the side of good. Go to the side of, let's be honest, kind of satisfying vengeance. So today we're going to talk about five women who fought back. 
five women who fought back against the Nazis. And when I say fought back, I mean resisted, I mean spied, and sometimes I mean straight up slaughtered. Now, if you've seen the movie Inglorious Bastards uh, by Tarantino, you kind of know that there is this weird subculture of like rejoicing in killing Nazis. And I don't know if that sounds violent or deranged, but um, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I mean. It's it's satisfying in a bloody, gory way because of what the plot is, which is basically uh, this this roving band of soldiers goes out and kills as many Nazis as they can. Now, um, Brad Pitt has a pretty awesome monologue in the movie that starts like this. We're going to be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. Once we're in enemy territory, as a bushwhacking guerrilla army, we're going to be doing one thing and one thing only. Killing Nazis. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I sure as hell didn't come down from the goddamn Smoky Mountains, cross 5,000 miles of water, fight my way through half of Sicily, and jump out of a fucking aeroplane to teach the Nazis lessons in humanity. Nazi ain't got no humanity. They're the foot soldiers of a Jew-hating, mass-murdering maniac, and they need to be destroyed. That's why any and every some bitch we find wearing a Nazi uniform, they're gonna die. So that's fun and all, in a vengeful way. But there's one major problem with the movie and with that monologue. The problem is that it's fictional. World War II never happened that way. None of it happened. The stories I'm about to tell you are real. So I want you to just imagine a woman saying those lines. You got it? Okay, let's go. jobs for an allied woman in the Second World War. There were so many jobs available, jobs that had never before been open to women, because all the young men who'd worked those jobs were now gone. They were overseas, in the trenches, covered in mud, being slaughtered by German artillery. And back home, their countries still desperately needed bullets to be built and airplanes to be manufactured. And so, especially if you were an American woman, surrounded by posters of Rosie the Riveter, that iconic factory worker with her sleeves rolled up and her red polka dot bandana crying out, we can do it, you'd feel more than a little pressure to get to work in the factories. You could also get a job as a nurse, another desperately needed position, which would bring you closer to the front lines than ever before in human history. There, when you weren't sewing up men who'd been blown wide open, you'd get to experience many of the same privileges as those blown open men. You'd duck from artillery fire, you'd suffer from PTSD. You might even become a prisoner of war. The enemy didn't care who they mowed down. 
If you stayed home, you could make care packages for soldiers full of medical supplies and chocolate bars. You could cook in a hospital. You could become a telephone operator. You could drive an ambulance. There were a thousand ways to help out, all of them noble, demanding, and necessary. A thousand tiny ways to push back against Hitler's grand, mad plan for domination. And then there were the jobs that people didn't talk about as much. The jobs that weren't necessarily advertised on posters. The darker jobs, where women weren't expected to come home again. The spies. The snipers, the resistors, the killers. Two days after the Christmas of 1921, a wild little girl named Nadezhda Vasilyevna Popova was born in the Ukraine. She was a lively kid, a perpetual motion machine, born with a burning desire for excitement, for adventure. When she was 15, she found that excitement by joining one of the Soviet Union's many flying clubs. She trained as a pilot and then began working as a flight instructor. She was all set to sail through peaceful skies for the rest of her life. And then, a few months before her 18th birthday, World War II began. Nadezda thought she might join the war effort as a pilot, but she was barred from enlisting. There was a sense in the Soviet Union, and in plenty of countries involved in both sides of the war, that sending women out to the front lines to die was morally, or at least aesthetically, displeasing. The place for women in the war was at home, working in factories, rationing the sugar. Whatever frustration Nadezda felt at being turned away from the job morphed into rage, agony, and a burning sense of patriotism in June of 1941, when Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, taking over her parents' home and turning it into a Gestapo police station, and, worst of all, slaughtering her brother. For the rest of her life, Nadezda would remember seeing German pilots come streaming over the streets of her hometown, gunning down women and children as they tried to abandon their houses. Seeing this gave me feelings inside that made me want to fight them, she remembered later, simply. The war had been political before, for girls like her, but now it was personal. Unfortunately for the Russian army, but thankfully for girls like Nadezhda, Russia soon changed its stance on the whole women-can't-fight thing, as they desperately needed more bodies to swell their country's ranks. By October of 1941, Stalin was forming three female pilot regiments, one of which was called the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. 19-year-old Nadezhda was thrilled when she was allowed into the 588th. She was immediately plunged into a grueling training program, during which she was expected to learn in a couple of months what male pilots were given years to absorb. When she and her fellow pilots weren't learning to corkscrew through the sky, they were facing skepticism or outright sexual harassment from the male pilots, who felt irritated and threatened at the fact that all these young women were suddenly participating in their world. 
Before long, it was time for her first mission. She crept out into the night in one of the cheap little planes that all the female pilots were given. Her mission was to drop two bombs onto the Nazis, one tucked beneath each wing of her plane. But something went wrong, and she watched in horror as two of her friends accompanying her on the mission were shot from the sky and plunged to their death. When she returned to camp, she was instantly given a new mission. There was no time to mourn her friends. There was only the war. And so her new life began. Her job was a brutal one. She and her fellow pilots, most of them teenagers or women in their early 20s, flew planes that may as well have been made of paper. They were old crop-dusting crafts, flimsily built out of plywood and canvas, and the cockpits were open so that the women didn't just have to worry about Nazi anti-aircraft guns. They also had to fight against frostbite. There was no budget for these female pilots, and so they wore old uniforms handed down from disgruntled male pilots, and old boots that were so big on them that they had to stuff the toes with scraps of cloth just to be able to walk. They flew at night, two to a plane, and their equipment was minimal, just a map and a compass and their own eyes peering sharply through the darkness. They had no defensive ammunition on their planes, no way to return fire. To avoid the enemy's bullets, they had to plunge into a nosedive and pray. The whole regiment could have been a joke. Young girls with pink cheeks rattling through the sky in junk planes. And yet, to the Nazis, they represented death herself. When the night was blackest, these girls would swoop low in their planes over the invading German army and drop bomb after bomb, 23,000 tons of bombs over four years. They'd fly as many as 18 missions a night, ducking and weaving through enemy fire that blazed up at them. Even some of their hardships ended up working to their advantage. For example, they didn't carry any radios because the Russians couldn't afford radios for their lady pilots. But this meant that they didn't show up on radio locators. And so the Nazis never knew when these girls would appear. Right before they dropped a bomb, the pilots would shut off their engines and glide towards their target. Their planes made an eerie whoosh sound as they flew. To the trembling Nazis on the ground below, they sounded like witches on broomsticks. And so the Nazis gave them a nickname. They called them the Nachthexen, or the Night Witches. When Nadezda flew, she ruled the sky. Her plane was like an extension of her own body, light, malleable, stealthy as a cat. She knew how to twist her craft around like a madwoman to avoid enemy fire, to slither through the air towards her target and then drop her bombs on them, seemingly out of nowhere. She and her fellow pilots would fly out in groups of three, and as two of the planes spiraled through the sky, distracting the Nazis and drawing their anti-aircraft fire, the third plane would drop its bombs and then become a decoy plane in turn, while the second plane dropped its bombs and then the first. The gig was incredibly dangerous. Once, Nadezda saw eight of her friends go down in flames, girls who she'd been sharing bunk beds with just the night before. She herself was shot down more than once, though she was never seriously wounded. One time, after a mission, she realized that there were bullets stuck not just in her plane, but wedged into her own helmet. Another time, she was shot down, scrambled out of her plane, and joined a group of retreating Russian soldiers as they all escaped from the area. 
One of those soldiers was a wounded fighter pilot who was reading a novel. They started chatting about books. She read him some poetry. She didn't know it at the time, though maybe she sensed it, but she was talking to her future husband. The night witches were so good at what they did that the Nazis started spreading rumors about them, trying to explain away their skill. They said that the young female pilots were criminals, which was why they were so good at being sneaky. Or that, oh, they had been injected with something to give them the nocturnal eyesight of a cat. They were so afraid of the witches that if any Nazi managed to shoot one of them down, he was automatically given a medal, the infamous Iron Cross. Nadezda scoffed when she heard these rumors. There was nothing supernatural about her skill or her eyesight. She was just damn good at her job. We bombed, we killed. It was all part of war, she said in an interview later. We had an enemy in front of us, and we had to prove that we were stronger and more prepared. The night witches flew and bombed and bombed and flew until a mere three days before Germany surrendered in May of 1945. Though they never got the credit that their male counterparts did, they weren't even included in Moscow's major victory parade since their planes were too slow. Nadezda was showered with medals, including Russia's highest honor. She was named a hero of the Soviet Union. In total, she had earned the rank of deputy commander and flown 852 missions. Does that mean that she killed 852 Nazis? Twice as many? Three times? That number is known only to God, but it must be very large indeed. Rumor has it that the night witches had their own set of commandments, 12 of them. The first was the most important. It read, Be proud you are a woman. Jewish girl named Witka Kempner was born one country over, in Poland. Witka grew into a sharp, well-educated teenager who studied at a seminary and joined intellectual Jewish student movements. Her hometown was located very close to the German border, and that didn't seem like a big deal at first, but by the time Witka was a teenager, it was becoming increasingly obvious that Germany's proximity to her life was something very terrible indeed because the war was beginning, and suddenly the German army was in her hometown, and suddenly they were rounding up people, and not just any people, but Jewish people, just like her, and putting them in an empty monastery. When Witka walked by the monastery, she heard screaming. Now, Witka was never one to sit around and hope that things would turn out okay. 
It was clear to her what was happening, clear to her that being Jewish around an invading German army was not going to turn out well for her, and so she told her parents that she was running away. Her parents were angry at her. They thought she was making a terrible, headstrong decision, but she was a teenager and they couldn't stop her, so she left. None of them knew it at the time, but Vitka would never see her parents again. She eventually made her way to the town of Vilna in nearby Lithuania. Vilna was free at the time and full of passionate young Jewish students just like her, but within two years of her arrival, the city fell to the Nazis, and Vitka began hearing rumors that these Nazis were now putting her people into death camps. Hints of those death camps were right there in her new town. The Nazis had formed two Jewish ghettos in Vilna, and one of them was full of people who were destined to be killed. Suddenly, the passionate Jewish youth of Vilna were no longer speaking in hypotheticals. They had to figure out what to do, what to actually do. They disagreed on a lot of things, the way any group of young intellectuals would. Should they hide? Should they try to cooperate? Should they stay in the ghettos? Should they run for the hills? It soon became clear, though, that disagreements over minor issues had to be subsumed under one major goal, and by the beginning of 1942, Vidka and her friends were joining all the various youth movements into one organization that they called the FPO. Their goal? Resistance at any cost. For the next three years, these young people would wage a guerrilla war against the Nazis in Vilna until their city was finally liberated. The FPO's first violent act was led by Vitka herself. She spent weeks learning the schedule of German military trains that arrived in the city, and when she was ready, she and a partner smuggled a homemade bomb out of one of the ghettos and tucked it onto a railway track, blowing up the next train to pull into the station. Over the following three years, she managed to wreck several other trains, and during one of these explosions, at least 200 German soldiers were blown to bits. Other times, she and her collaborators were forced to turn their violence against their own beloved city, demolishing a power station and the local water system so that the Nazis couldn't benefit from them. It wasn't an easy job, and not just because discovery would lead to instant death, or worse, torture and then concentration camp and then death. One of Vitka's many difficulties was that some of her fellow Jews who lived in the ghettos didn't approve of the FPO at all. Plenty of people thought they were too radical, that they were hotheads who would doom the entire community. By 1943, the majority of the city's Jewish population was crying out for the commander of the FPO to surrender himself to the Nazis. And so Vitka was forced to lead her comrades out of the ghetto and into the surrounding forests, where they could continue their resistance. They set up camp there, among the trees. Vitka was now in charge of staying in touch with the underground resistance fighters who had stayed in the city. She would also recruit people from the city and smuggle them into the FBO's hideout. She even learned that the best way to bring out weapons from the ghetto into their new forest lair was by transporting them out in coffins. The only thing that Jewish people were allowed to bring out of the ghetto was their dead. When the Nazis got wind of her activities and plastered her face all over the walls of Vilna, Vitka would simply slap on a disguise and continue about her business right under their noses. Eventually, her camp swelled to 600 people. But it was a brutal existence. 
They had no money, hardly any food, and they were fighting for their lives and for the lives of their people, some of whom disagreed with their entire approach. Amidst this life of deprivation, Vitka stood out. She ate less and slept less than anyone else in the camp. The comrades used to laugh at me, she said, and say that I was not a human being. She was, of course, a human being, and just like humans do, she eventually fell in love with Abba Kovner, another one of the group's leaders. They would stay together for the rest of their lives. When Vilna was finally liberated in 1944, Vitka was one of the first ones to reach the city, commanding a patrol unit. There, she met the Jewish Soviet soldiers who had liberated her adopted hometown. Everyone was crying. After the war, her partner, Abba, became more and more radical. He wanted revenge, more violence against those who'd been so violent to them. At first, Vitka participated. We had to take revenge for the spilling of Jewish blood, she said later. And they even managed to poison a camp of SS soldiers. But they couldn't go on fighting forever. Vitka told Abba that she wanted to stop the hard, violent work. She wanted to eat to sleep, to begin living her life again. And so, eventually, they did. They had children. Vitka went on to study psychology and even developed a new type of therapy. They moved to Israel. They lived as full human beings. take a quick break for this show's sponsors. Our first sponsor today is Stitcher Premium. Have you ever thought to yourself, I listen to so many podcasts and yet I seem to have a bottomless craving for more? Then you should totally sign up for a free month of Stitcher Premium using the promo code BROADS where you will find not only ad-free episodes of all your favorite shows, but thousands of hours of original content that you can't get anywhere else, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for when my occasional joke that I toss your way just isn't enough for you. Um, here are some of the many, many shows you can find on Stitcher Premium just by typing in crime to the search bar. Crime Junkie. Crime Lines True Crime. True Crime Garage, Case File True Crime, Wine and Crime, Crime in Sports, Crime After Crime, Southern Fried True Crime, Canadian True Crime, True Crime Brewery, True Crime Obsessed, Crime Writers on True Crime Review, Hollywood and Crime, True Crime All the Time, Crime Beat, Real Crime Profile, Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, Crawl Space, True Crimes and Mysteries, Hollywood Crime Scene, True Crime Chronicles, True Crime Guys, True Crime Couple, Australian True Crime, True Crime Historian, and Morbid a True Crime Podcast. To grab a totally free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and sign up with the promo code BROADS, B-R-O-A-D-S, BROADS, as in criminal ones. Our second sponsor is Care Of. Dear listeners, I need you to be honest with me. Are you taking your vitamins? And more importantly, are you taking the right vitamins? Because criminal broads are spooky, but nothing is more terrifying than not getting enough vitamin C. That's called scurvy, the subject of episode 31. 
Care Of is a subscription service that delivers vitamins and supplements customized for your specific health needs. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care Of makes it easy to find out what you need to be your healthiest, not what Lizzie Borden needs to be her healthiest, you know? They just have you take an easy online quiz about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, and once you take it, they'll give you a personalized, scientifically backed recommendation list of vitamins and supplements. So upgrade your health routine by going to takecareof.com and entering the code CRIMINALBROADS, one word, for 25% off your first Care Of order. The individually wrapped vitamin packets are made from compostable, plant-based film that meets the same safety requirements as whatever they're supposed to meet, so your vitamins are kept fresh while being better for the environment. Let's all get healthy so that we don't turn out like Belganis, headless in a burning house. Again, for 25% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter Criminal Broads. Like Vitka, the religion of Nur Inayat Khan was incredibly important to her. Her father was a Sufi Muslim, and she was raised to renounce worldly things, to strive for a purified soul, to practice tolerance, to contemplate the mystical nature of God, and to be, above all, a pacifist. But then the Nazis showed up. Nur was born in Moscow in 1914. She was raised in Paris by her American mother and her Indian father. Her father died on a pilgrimage back to India when Noor was only 13, and her mother was so stricken by his loss that Noor had to step up to the plate and take care of the family. And so she began the old work-life balance dance at a very young age. She kept the household going, she played music diligently, she studied at the Sorbonne, and she was pursuing a career as a writer when the war began. France fell to the Germans, and Noor and her family fled to England. She didn't have to fight. She could have stayed in England safely with her books and her music and ridden out the war. Her family had the money. Believe it or not, Noor was technically a princess, descended from long-ago Indian royalty, and so her wealth and status would have kept her safe. Besides, why should she care what happened to England? She was passionate about Indian independence and had no reason to feel sentimental about India's colonizer, Britain. And then there was her pacifist upbringing, surely a reason to sit out a war if there ever was one. But all of her reasons not to fight paled in the face of Nazi fascism, and Noor felt that she had to act. In 1940, when she was 26, Noor began training to become a radio operator, a role for which she showed a lot of natural skill. Since she spoke French, and England was desperate for French speakers to help them figure out exactly what was going on in Nazi-occupied France, she was soon recruited by an elite, top-secret British resistance group called the Special Operations Executive, or SOE. Before long, the SOE was sending her right back to where she came from, occupied Paris. When she got there, her new colleagues greeted her coolly. Her fellow spies, mostly men, 
weren't too happy with the new arrival. They thought she was too young, too inexperienced, and too careless. For example, she poured milk into her cup before pouring in tea, which instantly revealed her British background. One of her supervisors even wrote in her file that she had a, quote, unstable and temperamental personality. But they kept her around because she was really good at radio, and soon enough she was working under the assumed name Jeanne-Marie Renier, codename Madeline. Then disaster struck. Noor had only been in Paris for ten days when her network of fellow agents was raided and every single British agent who worked with her was arrested. Somehow, she was the only one who wasn't found. Come home now, screamed the SOE operatives back in England. But, shocking everyone, Noor refused. She said that she wanted to stay and rebuild the network herself. She could do it, she said. Just give me a chance. For the next four months, Noor was the only link between the French resistance and the country of England. She was doing the work of six people, disguising herself by dyeing her hair blonde and lugging a suitcase with a wireless radio inside all around the city, begging friends to let her set up shop in their apartments for a bit so she could send news back to London. Her messages helped fallen pilots escape the country, or over the radio she would arrange for deliveries of vital supplies. She could never stay in one place for long, though, because the Gestapo knew she was there, and they were even offering up a healthy reward if someone, anyone, would turn that pretty little Indian girl in. Sometimes, being a pretty little Indian girl worked to her advantage. One day, she was outside, stringing up the 40-foot piece of radio wire that she needed in order to get the correct signal to send and receive her messages, when... A Nazi soldier came along and asked her what in the world she was doing. He could have shot her then and there, but unbelievably, he somehow ended up being totally charmed by her, and by the time they were done chatting, he was actually helping her string up the wire. Noor always seemed to know, though, that she was never going to make it out alive. In her writings, family members would later notice a constant theme of sacrifice, of martyrdom. It was part of her Sufi upbringing, a willingness to lay down her life for others. As she moved around Paris like a ghost, sending messages from whatever corner she could find, someone eventually turned her in. The Gestapo's reward money had proved too hard to resist. She was a tiny, delicate woman, hardly more than a hundred pounds, but she resisted her arrest with every scrap of strength in her body, and even after she was captured, she made enough escape attempts that the Nazis labeled her highly dangerous. Highly dangerous. This, the same woman who, months earlier, was making amateur mistakes like pouring milk into her teacup before her tea. They shipped her off to a German prison on the edge of the Black Forest and threw her into solitary confinement. For the next ten months, she was starved, beaten, and brutally interrogated. What do you know? they asked her. What do you know? What do you know? She never gave up a single piece of evidence. On September 12, 1944, she was sent to Dachau, the infamous concentration camp. She was tortured there, again, just in case she'd changed her mind about the whole talking thing. She hadn't. The next day, 
she and three other women from the SOE were shot to death. Later, an anonymous prisoner from the camp said that he had heard the last thing Noor said, a single word that she shouted right before being shot down. Liberté. Freedom. Awesome women in the SOE, but Nancy Wake couldn't have been more different than Noor Khan if she had tried. Where Noor was a dreamer and an artist, Nancy was a flirt who could drink her male co-workers under the table. Of course, ultimately, their differences didn't matter one bit. For both of these women, flirting and drinking and dreaming and art were all eventually subsumed under their one true calling, destroying the Nazis. Nancy was born in 1912 in New Zealand, the youngest of six children. Her father abandoned her family when she was still very young, and this betrayal filled her with a rage and a fierce sense of independence that she would carry with her for the rest of her life. By the age of 20, she'd made her way to Europe, where she traveled around a bit before deciding that Paris was the place for her. She liked the vibe there. She also liked the handsome Parisian men. She worked as a freelance journalist during the day and partied hard at night, eventually marrying one of those handsome men. And then the war began. Nancy might have remained a party girl forever if she hadn't seen firsthand just how atrocious the Nazis were. She'd gone to Vienna for some journalistic work, where she witnessed gangs of Nazis wandering the streets, beating Jewish people at random, just for the sheer pleasure of it. The sight appalled her so much that she made a promise to herself. If she ever got the chance to fight the Nazis, she would do it gladly. My hatred of the Nazis was very, very deep, she said later. Thanks to her marriage, Nancy was now kind of a wealthy, high-class lady. And this served as a great disguise as the Nazis occupied France. She looked harmless, a nice rich lady flitting around the countryside. But behind the scenes, she began helping Allied soldiers and refugees leave France for safer lands. Soon enough, she was working on an important escape line organized by a doctor named Albert Guéris, a line that ferried over 600 people, many of them Allied pilots who'd been shot down, out of France through Spain and back to safety in England. After a while... The Gestapo caught wind of the fact that there was a nice rich lady resisting their diabolical plans, and the situation in France started to get a bit too hot for Nancy's comfort, so she decided to flee to Spain for a while herself. Her husband promised that he'd follow her, but before he could, he was captured by the Gestapo and killed. For the rest of her life, Nancy would blame herself for his death. But there was still a war to fight. Nancy made her way to England, where she joined up with the Special Operations Executive, the SOE. They appreciated her French connections, and it wasn't long before they'd given her a simple beginner's assignment. She was going to be dropped out of a plane into enemy territory with a parachute strapped her back to help prepare for D-Day. 
In April of 1944, she parachuted into France to stockpile weapons, hide ammunition, set up radio communications, and so on. But she got stuck in a tree when she was attempting to land. And the Frenchman who helped her down said something along the lines of, If only all trees would bear such beautiful fruit. She responded, Don't give me that French shit. Even though she was right back in France, where her spying had started, the Gestapo still couldn't catch her. They started calling her the White Mouse, since they could never trap her. And even when they put a reward of five million francs on her head, even when they put her name at the top of their most wanted list, she evaded them, and evaded them in bright red lipstick and fabulous hairdos, no less. Her work was always dangerous, but sometimes it got bloody. At one point, she ordered the death of a captured female spy. It didn't put me off my breakfast, she said later. After all, she had an easy death. Another time, she killed an SS guard who was about to give her position away. She didn't shoot him. Oh no, that would have been too loud. She killed him with her bare hands. She once jumped in and took over the command of a group of soldiers when their leader was killed, and she managed to help them all retreat without losing a single one of them. She was brilliant in battle. One of her colleagues said, She is the most feminine woman I know until the fighting starts. Then she is like five men. D-Day happened on June 6, 1944. Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy to invade German-occupied France, marking the beginning of the end of the Nazis. And two weeks later, Nancy found herself on a bicycle. Her SOE group had been attacked by the Germans, and they'd gotten separated from their radio operator, meaning that they'd suddenly lost all contact with London. Nancy knew that they desperately needed to re-establish that contact, and so she took off to find the nearest SOE operator. Nearest being a relative term, of course. She walked 125 miles, and then biked over 60 miles more until she found him. This wasn't the only time she'd biked extreme distances, either. Once, she had to bike over 300 miles to get a replacement for some very important codes that her radio operator had been forced to suddenly destroy so that the Gestapo didn't get a hold of them. Nancy biked the 300 miles, got off her bike, and found that she was suddenly unable to move. She remembered just standing there, frozen, crying with exhaustion. But she'd done it. Despite the agony of wartime, there was an ecstasy to it, too. It was exciting. It was meaningful. Nancy loved the rush, the busyness, the thinking on your feet. Her post-war life was never quite able to measure up for her. After the secret codes and the killing of Nazis with bare hands, real life was just a bit boring for her. She married again and always enjoyed a stiff drink and even ran for public office in Australia, and she made a healthy living selling off her old wartime medals, which she had a lot, saying that she might as well sell them because she was probably going to hell and they'd just melt in hell anyway. Why did she need a bunch of old medals? She'd been there. She remembered the blood and the smoke and the rush of it all. When she died, she used to say, she wanted her ashes spread along the hills where she'd fought alongside all those men. And that's exactly what happened at her funeral in 2013. After her ashes were scattered, her friends all drank gin and tonics in her honor. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Ludmila Pavlichenka would have appreciated the idea that Nancy Wake fought like five men because Ludmila was always determined to keep pace with the guys. As a kid, born in 1916 in a small Ukrainian town, she was a tomboy who was constantly competing with the boys in her neighborhood, sometimes to a rather deranged degree. When one of her neighbors started running his mouth about what a good shot he was, she began teaching herself how to shoot, and she just, um, never stopped practicing. What began as a challenge soon blossomed into an obsession. Even when she went off to college, where she ran track, she somehow found the time to also enroll in a school for snipers. When World War II began, no one would listen to Ludmila's insistence that she could be extremely helpful on the front lines as she was extremely good at shooting. Why don't you become a nurse, they said. She ignored them and continued to press the issue, and eventually an officer let her audition for him as a sniper. The audition was simple and brutal. He handed her a rifle, pointed towards a nearby group of occupying Germans, told her that there were two Romanians working with them, and asked her to pick the Romanians off. She killed them both without a problem. She got the job. Ludmila and her rifle were now official members of the Red Army's 25th Chapayev Rifle Division. As a professional sniper, her first day on the job was eerily similar to that of her airborne countrywoman, Nadezda Popova, in that she saw one of her colleagues get killed. The Germans were close, and she was too scared to even lift her rifle to shoot at them when they began shooting at her. There was a young man beside her, a nice guy, they'd chatted a little, and then suddenly he was dead, just like that. The shock spurred her into action. After that, she remembered. Nothing could stop me. That was the day her official kill count began. Ludmila was always very proud of her kill count. She didn't count the deaths of those two Romanians, because those were just test shots, she said, but on her first day of work, she killed two Germans and the race was on. We mowed down Hitlerites like ripe grain, she said once. It was bloody work, but satisfying. She never regretted a dead Nazi. The only feeling I have, she said when a journalist asked her about how she felt about her job, is the great satisfaction a hunter feels who has killed a beast of prey. As her kill count grew higher and higher, the Red Army put her in riskier and riskier positions, knowing that she could handle it. Her most dangerous jobs involved counter-sniping, basically engaging in a fight to the death with the German army's most talented snipers. These counter-sniping assignments were like a duel on steroids. They could last all night. In fact, one of them lasted for three days. They were grueling. Ludmila would have to remain perfectly still for, say, 15 hours at a time, all while keeping her eyes trained on the Nazi sniper's position, waiting for him to give himself away. One flinch of a muscle would get her killed, but Ludmila never flinched. The Nazi always flinched first. She never lost a single one of these duels, and ultimately had the satisfaction of adding 36 Nazi sniper kills to her long list. Before long, her total kill count had risen to 257, and the Red Army made public acknowledgement of her skill. Her response was simply, I'll get more. It didn't take long for the Nazis themselves to learn her name, her skill, and her kill count, which finally topped out at 
309 dead Nazis. They were terrified of her, enraged by her, and so impressed with her that they tried to lure her over to their side, sending messages over their loudspeakers that blared, Ludmila Pavlichenka, come over to us. We will give you plenty of chocolate and make you a German officer. Four times their bullets hit her, but she kept on fighting, despite developing a bad case of PTSD. It wasn't until a bomb went off near her position and she was sprayed in the face with shrapnel that the Red Army decided to take her away from the front lines and use her to train future snipers. She was too valuable to risk losing. In 1942, she was sent on her strangest mission yet, a trip to the United States where she was supposed to try and convince the U.S. to invade Europe in order to divide Hitler's armies and help the Soviet Union out. America didn't quite know what to make of her at first, but the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, loved her. The two of them became friends, and Eleanor suggested that she should go on a tour of America to talk about her experiences as a woman in war. Initially, the American press mocked her a bit. They were shocked that she didn't wear makeup or seem to care about her appearance. One journalist even wrote snarkily that Joan of Arc always kept her armor shiny. After dealing with enough comments like this, Ludmila started talking back, criticizing Americans for being too obsessed with their appearances and not obsessed enough with, you know, killing Nazis. In Chicago, she told a crowd, Gentlemen, I am 25 years old and I have killed 309 fascist occupants by now. Don't you think, gentlemen, that you have been hiding behind my back for too long? With statements like that. America came roaring over to her side. Woody Guthrie even immortalized her exploits in a song. Fell by your gun, fell by your gun, 300 Nazis fell by your gun, fell by your gun, oh, fell by your gun, more than 300 Nazis fell by your gun. It wasn't until two years later that the U.S. finally listened to Russia's cries for help and invaded Europe on D-Day. You know, the whole reason that Nancy Wake was stuck in that tree in the first place. Russia heaped awards on their bright young lady sniper. But despite all the recognition that Ludmila got at the time, she was still scarred, physically and emotionally, by those grueling days in battle. And at the end of her life, she found herself abandoned by her country. There was no safety net in Russia for elderly veterans, no state-sponsored means of making her final days a little bit better. She was only 58 when she died, cradled in the arms of her son. But she went down fighting. Her daughter-in-law, who was watching, says that Ludmila swore like a sailor before finally taking her last breath. In July of 1944, the first major Nazi concentration camp was liberated by Soviet troops. 
The Nazis had attempted to hide the true reason for the camp by destroying it, but they hadn't had the time to hide the gas chambers. And so when the Soviets arrived, they were confronted by evidence of mass murder. On April 29, 1945, while hiding 50 feet underground like a rat, Adolf Hitler married his longtime mistress, Eva Braun. The next day, he swallowed a cyanide pill and shot himself in the head. Eva took cyanide, too. They also poisoned their dogs. Just over a week later, Germany surrendered. World War II officially ended on September 2, 1945, but not before the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. Three months later, the female concentration garb, Irma Greza, dropped from the gallows to her death. Earlier, a former concentration camp prisoner had screamed at her in her cell, Why did you do it? The number of people estimated to have served in the war all across the globe was 1.9 billion. The number of deaths estimated to have been sustained worldwide across the globe during the war 72 million. The number of European Jews massacred in the Nazi Holocaust, 6 million. The number of other groups slaughtered by the Nazis, including the Romani, the disabled, Soviet prisoners of war, and all other people declared undesirables by Hitler, close to 4 million, at least. It was a stain on human history, a shock to the collective system, a bloodbath. But through it all, through the gore and the horror, there were people fighting for humanity, for whatever scrap of goodness remained in the world. Their work wasn't pretty. Nadezda, whistling through the sky like a witch on a broomstick, carrying death beneath the wings of her plane. Vitka, starving in the forest and blowing up the structures of the city that she loved. Noor, a girl raised to love pacifism and mysticism and God and art, running through the alleys of Paris until she found herself being marched through a concentration camp to her death. Nancy, slapping down her gin and tonic and tearing through the French night on a rickety bicycle to get codes that would save hundreds of lives. Lidumila, crouched among the trees, as silent as a stone for hours and hours, determined to pick off the lives of those she knew were killers. These women had all seen evil firsthand. They knew how it moved, how it smelled, how it sounded over the radio, how it spread through the world. They could have stayed home. They could have stayed safe but they chose to fight. My loves, I am an emotional 
wreck after finishing that episode. I gotta say, when I was researching and writing the script, I cried at least twice. The parts that always got me were the facts that uh, Nora's last word was freedom. I mean, oh my god. <laughs> I mean, how powerful is that? And the part where Nancy Wake's colleague says that she fought like five men. Um, just, I don't know, gets me. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I hope it was, um, I'll use a word my dad always uses, fruitful. I hope it was fruitful to look back at World War II um, from these, I guess, multiple angles. Um, oh my gosh, let's move on to lighter topics. I would like to thank my two patrons who are the guardian angels of this episode. Their names are Wendy Big, thank you Wendy, and Sonia. Thank you, Sonia. Anyone else who's interested in becoming a patron and getting a shout out, go to patreon.com slash criminal broads. Um, check out criminal broads on Instagram for photos of these bad bitches. Um, you can always email criminalbroads at gmail.com with um, whatever you want to say. And as always, leaving a review on iTunes is very much appreciated for the health of the pod and the health of the podcast host. And there was one more thing I was going to tell you, but now I'm spacing out. Oh, I remember what it was. Um, the music for today's episode, I was, I want, I couldn't decide what to use. I wanted something that was, um, like both moving and badass at the same time. And since just between me and you, I can't afford to use Beyonce's music or Bad Girls by M.I.A., which was my first choice, I decided to look back through the, um, you know, classical records I have stored in my brain. There are some in there. There are some in there. And think about songs that have always moved me. And this Rachmaninoff piano concerto has always just stirred my blood. Um, and Rachmaninoff was Russian, and two of the women in this episode are, I mean, born in Ukraine, but it was part of the Soviet Union at the time. So anyway, it didn't seem that thematically crazy. I hope you liked it. All right, I'll let you go. Hope this heat isn't crushing your spirits. I hope this episode was somewhat or very much inspiring to you. And thank you, as always, for being such awesome listeners and just being there. I really appreciate it. I'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.